Welcome to Mouthwash, TBD Conferences podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD, that's technology, behavior and data, and founder of the emerging technology advisory, Hereforth. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist, the gentleman who opened the very first TBD conference too. So it felt right to have Tom back to open the podcast. I'm chatting with Tom on Twitter spaces, hence the quality of the audio isn't as you'd expect in a full studio setting. He's an absolute brainiac on so many subjects, but the theme for season one wasn't unfamiliar ground. It was the first theme for TBD when we thought that Brexit was the biggest shake-up that could happen to the world. How wrong we were. I am proud to have The Economist as long-time supporter of TBD, and if you don't subscribe already, make sure you do. Head over to economist.com and get informed about everything that's changing and why. All right. Just as the lo-fi uh, drowns out the police cars that are going up and down my street at the moment, thank God it all uh, it all works with lo-fi. Um, I would like to kick off the inaugural uh, mouthwash show. Um, we're aiming for fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident every weeknight uh, with me, your host Paul Armstrong, and a smart cookie of my choosing. Tonight's cookie is Tom Standage, deputy editor of the global opinion maker, The Economist. Uh, Mike. T- Tom's got the uh, mic, uh, but none of else, no one else will at the moment. We're not going to do that whole pass the mic around because we're still a beta product um, with Twitter Spaces, but we are in a world first, so we are testing the limits, and we all love to be experimenters. Um, before we get going, do me do me a massive favor um, and uh, take a minute to help promote Mouthwash. Uh, if you can share the top box that you're seeing on. Um, on the space at the moment that says, I am listening to the first ever. If you click on that and click through, you should be able to just retweet that. If you could just take a second just to retweet that, that would be a massive, uh, massive favor to yours truly. And while you uh, figure out how to do that, which you literally click through, then just click the share button, you should be fine, which is the little up arrow and the upturned staple. Uh, we should be good. Um, or just click the up arrow and staple and you can uh, write your own tweet at your leisure. Um, why am I asking you to do that? Number one, it helps popularize uh, mouthwash, let's be honest. But for every person that you entice into the space, uh, we're going to plant a tree in the TBD forest. I'll talk a bit more about TBD in a minute. Um, but the folks at Ecology who um, really make offsetting carbon footprints easy, um, they're actually uh, one of our partners um, for the first season. And I'm incredibly uh, proud to partner with them. Uh, if you want to find out more about Ecology, um, nip to ecology.com and that's e-c-o-l-o-g-i not a y.com so e-c-o-l-o-g-i.com and um, whether it's for yourself or your business um, Elliot and the team really really good partners they've been good partners for TBD the conference that I create and curate uh, many many moons ago um, thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show um, Shell's uh, recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner um, in step with society, of course. Um, find out how Shell's powering progress at www.shell.com forward slash powering progress. Um, it's a good site, lots of good information there. Definitely recommend you check it out. Um, also on the Shell front, um, we've got um, lots of people coming up um, in the first 20 episodes. And Dan Jevons, he's actually joining us at the end of the season to talk about business digitization, uh, something that uh, I think after the last year, everyone's been through a forced change, um, still woefully lacking for a lot of people. So I think he, I think he's going to have a popular space, uh, if that makes sense. Um, but right, but on to um, tonight's guest, I think. Um, 
needs little introduction. Tom Standage opened the first TBD conference back in 2018 and has opened every other one since. We did a virtual one this year. Um, I'm incredibly proud to um, have the Economist Trust when it comes to TBD. I think it's really important. Tom is their deputy editor, um, and he's in charge of The World In, um, that series, the brilliant book that he um, puts out every year, and their digital strategy, and he writes a fair bit as well. Um, I remember drinking with Tom on top of a very random um, bar in Dubai when I was doing a gig for Visa um, and we discussed everything from hacking to um, the state of politics and that sort of stuff um, and also all, all, all on the backdrop of very very questionable musical choices considering the area that we we're in. Um, I uh, apologise to him profusely because uh, I was not used to drinking in the heat but anyway. Um, aside from that he's also in a band and an incredibly fascinating person to talk to um, with an incredibly fascinating journey uh, from photography all the way through to what he's doing now. Um, so let's test out the functionality of the spe weird space that we're in. Uh, give you appreciation with a hand clap emoji. If you just press the little heart button down the bottom of it, you should be able to do a little um, heart emoji uh, to Tom or 100% or whatever you want to do. I'm going to do 100% to let him know that we're there because we're not doing the whole mute, unmute thing. They don't do that on this platform. So we've got Tracy's waved. We've got Koto waved. 100% are coming. Excellent. 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 Oh, yeah. So, Thank you. That's great. There you go. <laughs> So at least we know that the audio works. So, Tom, welcome to the first ever mouthwash. Are you or are you not thrilled? <laughs> I am thrilled. It's great. It's a great idea. And I really like the strap line as well. Um, Excellent. Loving yes, that. Making you more confident. That's, uh, that. you know, the, the, the Economist is, is essentially selling the same thing, which is like, read us and then, you know, you'll be able to go into that meeting uh, or step into the lift with your boss and be confident. And when your boss says, you know, what do you think about the situation in Lebanon? You'll, you'll have the answer. So, um, so that's a, that's very much on brand for us. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I, um, I got the, um, I actually, I think I got it today, actually, the, um, the last issue. It's got a beautiful cover and I had to read it a couple of times because it obviously just said, I'm reading it quickly, said United Kingdom, but it actually says Untied Kingdom, the perilous state of the union, which I think is a really interesting one. Beautiful. You always have beautiful covers. I think that's number one. Number two, we had three, I, we had three this week. So that was, that was one of them. And then we also had a Myanmar cover in, in Asia. And then in the US, oh. we had this CEO as megaphone. So it's like a CEO um, and, you know, his head is is turned into a megaphone. Um, and that's about the politics, you know, business and politics, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. So, yes, this is a this is one of those rare weeks where we actually had three covers. Um, and that un United, Untied Britain, Untied Kingdom cover uh, that you saw is a pun that has been a couple of years in the making. It was actually a retired economist journalist who um, sent a message to our cover designer saying, you know, I've had a great idea for a cover. You might think about this one day. And we kind of put the idea in the cupboard and then this was the, the week to use it. So there you go. It's been it's been brewing for a long time. Oh, my God. I love that. I love that. Um, just before we get going in the um, the questions I forgot to mention, we have the hashtag mouthwash show. So please do use it vicariously, whether you're promoting the show um, or you've got a question for Tom or myself. Um, I'm not adverse to answering questions, but really the focus of today is uh, Tom. So that's mouthwash show or one word. Use the hashtag. You know what to do there. Um, and Tom, I think uh, the best thing for us to do is rattle off um, some questions that I've created for you that you've had very little knowledge of, so that's good. Um, but tell me, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm reading a very good book at the moment, um, which is actually it's from a couple of years ago, but it's a it's a it's a detective novel, and I I wanted to start reading that again. So it's probably to do with like I need to do that. What 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 was the novel? It's know? called Eight Detectives, and it's a 
Um, it's seven short stories wrapped up in an eighth mystery, and it's a sort of homage to the golden age of detective um, fiction from the 20s and 30s, you know, Agatha Christie and so on. But it's got this sort of postmodern wrapping around it. And it's also got set theory. So it's written by supposedly the um, author of these stories is a, is a mathematician who has um, figured out the uh, set theory representation of what mystery stories are um, and the extent to which the sets of suspects, victims, murderers and detectives can overlap and all of the different permutations that arise from that. So it really scratches a lot of itches for me. So there you go. I, it was, um, I, was, I was keen to start reading that again. I think in one comment, you've just summed up what people uh, imagine and what I know about you and that sort of thing. I think that's very good. Um, let's start with an easy one. Um, can I have the exact date when the pandemic will end? Mm, no, because pandemics don't really kind of, they, they fizzle out and it's going to fizzle out in different places and at different times um the developing world much of the developing world is not going to get serious amounts of vaccine until early 2023 probably mm-hmm. um so yeah it's going to be it's going to be different in different places and actually i think the the optimism that people felt at the end of last year particularly in britain but you know in in much of the west when the um the vaccine trial results started to come out and you know there was a sort of sense of wow the light at the end of the tunnel um has arrived sooner than we thought and now i think there is a general sense that the light is further away than we thought there are all of these complications there's the side effects um from some of the vaccines which i think are overstated but um you know mm-hmm. there's you, you can see that set back the um uh, the program in some places you've also got the variants and the emergence of new variants and the best possible scenario for the emergence of more worrying variants is a sort of slow or incomplete vaccination uh, campaign which is what we seem to be experiencing in some countries so um, you know in the US they now seem to be going from a situation where the the constraint on how quickly they can vaccinate is no longer the supply of vaccines it's the availability of people who are willing to have them Um, and that's very worrying something like 43 percent of Republicans say they'll never have a vaccine Um, and so that's really a, um, a recipe for having some parts of the US um, you know, being little incubators of new of new strains, and then we've got new strains popping up all over the place. Anyway, there's this this worrying um, Indian variant, which is a double mutant, so it's got two of the existing variants mixed together. We don't know how bad that is. We don't know whether that makes it much worse or not. Um, but you know, that's being watched very closely. So I think the the idea that we could sort of flick a switch with the vaccine and go back to the way things were, which I think you know there was a fair amount of that that sentiment floating around uh, at the end of last year. Uh, that now seems rather unlikely. We may get something you know like that in Britain because we do seem to be making making good progress. But you can only then maintain that if you keep the borders closed. Um, yeah. And so that also puts you in a very interesting situation. If you're one of these countries that's managed to suppress the virus without using vaccines, um, so places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, which have had you know very very few cases, um, New Zealand and Australia have recently reopened their uh, their travel bubble. But the difficulty that those countries will face is that sooner or later they are going to want to open up to the world again. Um, and that's going to mean that people are going to be bringing in new cases and they've got totally unvaccinated populations. And they've also got populations who say, well, why should we get vaccinated? We haven't got any cases. Um, so there's some very difficult political decisions ahead. And this is all going to take uh, not months, but years to, to work through. So I'm really sorry I can't give you a date. Um, but I think, you know, probably we'll uh, in the next couple of years, we'll have a moment where we go, "Oh yeah, we're not we're not wearing masks quite as often, or we're not, you know." But it will it will it will fade out. And the other thing I'd I'd remind you of is, you know, when did the sort of the terrorism panic after 9-11 come to an end. Well, we still feel it when we go to the airport now and we have to take all the liquids out, we have to take our shoes off, and we have to do a whole load of things that frankly do not really increase security very much. Um, 
but you know their legacies of that of that period so um so you know in a sense that's still going on and that just becomes baked into the new normal um so yeah that's the kind of that's the kind of future that we face which is that some of these things are, are here to stay a sobering and tragic and but realistic point of view there on that <laughs> it's, let's pick it up i think uh, but yeah it's it's a funny time isn't it i think with a lot of people I've, I've definitely been going out more over the last few days and that's just i'm just seeing people very very relaxed in the uk and across the world but obviously lots going on that i think are going to move people's um thoughts and feelings towards that when we think about the rest of the world um, how important is, and we've got people, I can see already people from across the world, from across the pond to the other places in the world. Uh, how important is the UK to the world stage right now? Um, has Brexit just made us look like we've shot ourselves in the foot or? Well, yeah, I mean, Brexit makes us much less relevant as a, as a world power. But I think, I think there are countries that are looking to us on, um, you know, when, when a large economy, uh, has an effective vaccine program, what does that look like? So certainly the EU is, EU countries that are quite comparable to us in lots of ways are looking to that and saying, because we're we're north of fifty percent of adults vaccinated now, which is great, um, yeah. and uh, in fact I think we're north of fifty percent of the population almost, aren't we? So 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 that's going very well, um, and you know there is certainly. Um, uh, a lot of attention because you know there have been other places that have done a good job you know, bhutan did 85 percent of the population yeah. in a week uh chile did a great job but they did a great job with a chinese vaccine that doesn't seem to work as effectively as some of the others um yeah. israel has has gone very quickly and israel has also been a test bed for vaccine passports but the fact is when you vaccinate people really quickly like they did in in israel you don't really need the vaccine passports anymore because you've got enough um, cover it. So vaccine passports are weird because, you know, you need them more when when lots of people are vaccinated, sorry, when few people are vaccinated, but then that's not fair. And then by the time enough people are vaccinated that it's fair, you don't really need them anymore. So um, so we're, we're kind of a bit sceptical about vaccine passports um, domestically at The Economist. We think they might be useful and we think IATA, the international you know, air transport regulator, will probably introduce some kind of scheme um, around vaccine passports. But, uh, but we think within countries, they probably don't make a lot of sense. Um, we'll see what happens in the US where you've got a, obviously a, you know, a really, really big country with lots of states with lots of different laws maybe maybe it makes more sense there anyway so britain is an interesting test bed um in that regard and there are um other countries looking closely i think at, at how the uh the vaccination goes and how the unlocking goes because we're sort of ahead of the curve in the sense that the kent variant which is what's raging through europe now obviously we had that first because it came from here so we had our our peak before christmas that you know the rest of europe's having now and so in that sense we are a telescope into the future and um hmm, interesting so loads of ways uh when you think about geopolitically how secure are we right now not just vaccines but other things it it tends to feel like when i see covers that you do for the economist it feels like world war three is um closer than ever even with the cheeto one uh, that's gone um is that just perception is that just media or do you think there are realistic you know real worries that are you know coming up Oh, there are lots. There are lots of real worries at the moment, and I think the um, so obviously um, Putin is is um, <laughs> he seems to be throwing his weight around. There's a um, you know there's a, there's an awful lot of things he's doing, and people are, are paying a lot more attention. Uh, but mm. I think the, the you know the the mega trend here is obviously the rise of China and the um, the realization, and this isn't just down to Donald Trump. It's it's a realization across the sort of U.S. 
and Western foreign policy establishment, that bringing China into the World Trade Organization at the turn of the century, the idea was that you know trade liberalization would lead to political liberalization, and that didn't happen. And in fact, China has become more authoritarian. And I think the area where you know, some people are going to be quite surprised is the amount of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to China. Um, yeah. Trump, you know, he picked a fight with China. And uh, and actually, you know, a lot of people agreed that it was necessary for the US to stand up to China. But where they would disagree is how he did it. So he did it in a rather economically illiterate way by putting these tariffs uh, on Chinese imports, which are actually paid by American consumers. And then he also picked fights with America's own allies, um, you know, such as the EU. Uh, and what we're going to see from Joe Biden and what we're already seeing is the construction of a much more united front. He's going to continue to prosecute this campaign against China in a lot of ways. He's also going to call them out on things that Donald Trump didn't, like human rights in Xinjiang and so forth, um, mm. and Hong Kong. And um, the idea is that if you have a united front of democracies, then you can um, you can make more of a difference against China. And there are also going to be areas where we hope China and America can, can, um, can cooperate as, you know, even if, if they're competing or in conflict in other areas. So climate would be the most important one there. So it's a very complex picture, but essentially um, it's the mega trend of the rise of China. And, you know, China will be the largest economy in the world in, you know, in the next few years. And um, and that is reflected in, in a lot of other areas, whether it's, you know, if, if you're a, a telecoms provider and you are choosing your network gear, that's now a geopolitical decision. Do you buy Huawei gear or not? And now you probably don't if you're in, in Europe. But it extends to other things too. I mean, you know, China processes, um, it produces most of the rare earths and it, uh, rare earth materials that you need for things like electric cars um, and, you know, green wind turbines and so forth. And then um, lithium battery production, it absolutely dominates that and lithium processing. And so yeah. those, you know, if you're a, again, you're a car maker and you've got a big plan to, to green your, your, fleet and your green your production uh your your offer um that's very problematic if you can't get hold of those materials so a lot of things that weren't political decisions before have been politicized um and probably the kind of epicenter of that at the moment is taiwan and the chip business so taiwan tsmc is the, you know, the most advanced chip maker in the world the phone the iphone that i'm talking to you through now has this um has this you know tsmc whatever it is seven nanometer i think um processor um and Intel has dropped the ball, it's two generations behind now. And so there is this big concern that America's tech giants um, rely on this Taiwanese company to make their chips. And that's not just Apple, it's also Amazon and Tesla and Google, who all have custom chips being made by TSMC. And um, and obviously, you know, Taiwan is an island that China lays claim to. And so suddenly those tech companies are paying a lot more attention to security in the South China Sea. Um, so yeah, the politics, you know, geopolitics and, and technology have and, and business generally have are overlapping in ways that they they hadn't previously. Um, and that's a that's a very big trend and the it's basically driven underneath by the mega trend of the rise of China. I think both China and big tech at the moment underpin something else um, which I think a lot of people want to know is economic recovery. How how do you see that playing out over the next sort of 20, uh, 24 months? Uh, we had lots of letters at the start of the pandemic, which one's it going to be? Do, do you have any sort of idea of which one we are actually going through and if it, and if the variants will change it and how does that sort of change? Um, well, there is a um, the, 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 the big sort of 
the big factor that changes things here. Well, firstly, the um, China China came back very very strongly in in 2020. It was the only major economy that grew, and this was essentially because they suppressed the virus so effectively um, at the beginning of the year, which you could do more easily if you're an authoritarian country. Um, and that meant that Chinese factories were open for business when the rest of the world hit um, hit lockdowns and and all the things they needed, you know, could be provided by China. But the big story this year is the U.S. stimulus. The U.S. stimulus is really really enormous, um, mm. and I think again this is a mega trend that you know if you step back and look at the sort of decade or um you know century level um this is a this is a dramatic change in economic policy um i mean this is this is on the scale of the new deal i mean this is an enormous uh, economic stimulus and uh, and it's really quite radical and this is all sort of rather artfully concealed by joe biden's you know ordinary joe um persona but what he's doing is really quite extraordinary i mean the the us stimulus is so um so impressive that it's actually going to increase uk gdp by something like 0.6 percentage points um i mean it really is lifting the whole world um it's extraordinary um and but in particular it's driving this massive boom in america which is already underway um so that's that's very good news um you know in terms of uh, of global growth and um it also is it's an interesting you know that what he's trying to do is fix a whole load of other problems by rolling them into this recovery package and then his infrastructure package that he's trying to follow it up with so he's trying to do things like address uh, racial injustice and economic inequality and climate change as part of these uh, bills and we'll see if that works but it's um it's a really really clever way of doing it um and it also you know, it's very hard to argue against well let's fil- fix the bridges let's fix the roads let's create mm-hmm. when, he, when he talks about climate change he says climate change to him means well-paid union jobs that makes it very very hard to argue against let's build lots of wind turbines let's build lots of charging points for electric cars um and so on and so on so um it's it's politically very radical and very savvy, and yet it's um, you know it's being delivered by Uncle Joe, who's just you know who who is uh, able to disarm uh, Republican critics that you know he's a he's a socialist. He just doesn't look like a socialist. It, of course, he isn't a socialist, but um, but you know it's it's uh, it's really quite savvy. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out this year, not just in the U.S. but because of these knock-on effects on um, economies around the world. Yeah. Bezos uh, left last, uh, sorry, he's leaving soon, but he's left a nice love letter to stakeholders um, last week. What do you think the next 24 months has in store for um, everyone's favourite cardboard abuser? Well, you're the expert on this because you track them very closely with your um, what have they done this week, which is, you know, I mean, it's hard to imagine another company that where you could generate that much uh, news flow from, from a single company. Because, I mean, the thing about Amazon, they've always you know, they're, of course, they're not a bookstore. Of course, they're not an e-commerce company. They've always been a tech company, um, and, uh, and and well, actually, they've always been a company that has never, they've never it's thought there was a market they couldn't enter, yeah. um, and uh, and that's really the interesting thing about them. They they aren't hemmed in. And I remember I remember thinking about this. Um, and and the 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 first time I interviewed Jeff Bezos, I was just in like oh nineteen ninety nine. I said, "You're really a tech company, aren't you?" And he was like, "Yeah, we're really a tech company." But um, but the opposite at the time for many years was Microsoft because Microsoft was hemmed in by the "we're the Windows company" mentality. So Microsoft for many years, the answer was Windows. Now, what's the question? <laughs> windows for your car and you say i'm a you know i'm building a washing machine i need soft, embedded software but they go great windows is the answer and um this they were so defined by whatever the question 
Windows is the answer. That it obviously, you know, was really bad. And that's the, the transformation, the liberation of Microsoft now that it's been freed from the, you know, the 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 ball and chain of having to just push Windows as the answer to everything is is astonishing. And now we see Microsoft doing the same thing. That you know, essentially, they don't think there are markets they they can't be playing in. Um, and uh, uh, and so it's money. very much it's very much following the Amazon playbook. So yeah, it's um. It's it, obviously they're, there's, they'll, they'll keep surprising us with the markets they move into, I think. Yeah, they're, certain, they're upping their spend every time, it seems. As well. It's like money's growing on trees for Microsoft at the moment. Um, speaking of trees, uh, big year ahead with um, COP26 uh, on these various shores in the, U- in the UK. Uh, environment, obviously, was not high on uh, the Cheeto One's um, agenda, but Biden very much reversing all of those decisions. Beyond 2021, what's next for the environment? What what, what should people be looking out for? Well, I, I think the, the big question is whether 2021 will, in retrospect, come to be seen. So again, we're trying to sort of step back and take the 10 or 20 or 50 year view. Will mm. 2021, in retrospect, come to be seen as the year that we sort of turned the corner and started to take serious action on climate? Um, and there is a plausible there is a plausible hypothesis um, that that is what could happen this year. So the big the big news is obviously Biden, not Trump, which means that the US is back in the Paris Agreement. Then you've got this really, really big um, green stimulus and then, you know, potentially this infrastructure plan that also has big green elements in it, which shows America means, means business on, on this. And also the recasting of climate change as the friend to the blue collar worker, the friend mm. to the Rust Belt worker who, you know, maybe hasn't got a job in a car factory anymore, but can now, you know, go and, go and build wind turbines or install. Um, uh, electric car charging points or whatever. So that's an interesting reframing. And then the other big piece of news, um, potentially bigger piece of news, is that um, China declared its intention at the end of last year to go carbon neutral, which isn't quite the same as climate neutral because it's actually only <laughs> restricting the um, the carbon emissions and not the methane and other um, uh, GHGs. But hey, um, the main thing is they want to be carbon neutral by 2060. Um, they haven't exactly filled in the details on that yet, uh, but that puts pressure on other countries. And the thing about the COP26 conference is that all of the countries are supposed to show up and and um, make their pledges for how much they're going to cut emissions, these things called mm-hmm. NDCs. And if you add up the NDCs they've made so far, it's not enough to meet the Paris targets of limiting warming to one and a half to two degrees. Um, so they all need to raise their game. And uh, the Chinese clearly have, you know, have, have done that. And that puts pressure on other countries, notably India, which is, um, you know, really behind on these things uh, to come up with with their plans. So what what I hope will happen is that there will be a, um, you know, a sort of raising of the of the game and uh, a general uh, enthusiasm for, for making more progress on this this year. And um, you know that could, in retrospect, come to be seen as a as a turning point. The other thing to watch out for, and again, this is something we we can only see a couple of years later, is whether mm. global emissions, where when are global carbon emissions going to peak? Um, and we can see that um, you know big economies are becoming less carbon intensive, so they're still their their carbon emissions are falling even as their GDP is growing. Um, and um, you know various people have said we may see peak carbon emissions in uh, you know sometime in the second half of the 2020s, but it may actually come sooner than that. Um, so that would be the thing to watch. Of course, um, you know it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, once we've once we've got carbon emissions down to zero, which is a big a, a tall order, but once we get there, we've kind of fixed the problem. We haven't. We've just stopped it from getting any worse. We are going to have to take carbon out of the atmosphere as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, there's quite a lot going on in that in that department. It's not just about planting trees; it's about building machines that can actually suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and bury it underground or turn it into other products. And so um, that's a that's an area to watch. But I think um, with luck, um, COP26 could be seen in. Re- 
retrospect is the point where um, mankind got serious about dealing with climate change. And I really hope that will be the case. Yeah, I hope so too. I've seen a lot of innovation um, coming from um, Middle East and Asia um, in that sort of area of the reversing of carbon actually in the air, if that makes sense, not just planting more trees, as you rightly point out, from creating bricks that breathe and that sort of stuff to um, the way that buildings are actually positioned so that air is done in different ways. Very, really interesting. There's all uh, sorts of things. And, and Bill Gates is very good on this. So his his new mm-hmm. book talks about this. But, but um, you know, people are very fixated on, well, if we all have electric cars and we switch to green energy tariffs and have lots of wind turbines haven't we solved the problem and he's like no those are the easy bits of the problem and yeah. normally you know normally you don't when you're trying to solve a problem you don't focus on the easy bits you focus on the hard bits and the hard bits are like how do we get emissions down in agriculture how do we get emissions down in in um, in building you know in, in producing cement in making steel um you know these are all very very e- energy intensive um processes that in many cases also produce massive amounts of co2 not through combustion of fuel but just through the actual process and so um, we need new processes in those areas Areas too. So the, the kind of the electric cars and the and the wind turbines is kind of the easy bit. And um, we need an awful lot more focus on the, the other bits too. But you know, the technologies are, are starting to emerge. So fingers crossed. Uh, let's talk about um, uh, autonomous cars and electric vehicles. Um, for a moment. Amazon has um, uh, one second. Sorry, there's going to be a police. Oh, yeah, I can hear the sirens going past. So, the, the, so my speakers are fully uh, unclogged. That's great to know. Good to uh, quality audio, as they say, quality audio. Um, so yeah, so um, Tesla, obviously a big market mover in their move to Texas recently. Are they ever going to get a proper competitor, or is it just upwards and upwards for them? I think the big question is um, is whether. Um, the, the company to watch is VW, because I think of the big car makers, um, VW yeah. is the one that sort of could potentially rival um, Tesla on, on manufacturing scale. I mean, mm-hmm. VW makes a lot more cars than Tesla. Um, it's it's a tough one because, I mean, the, the obvious analogy is with smartphones. And if you look at who used to run, who used to dominate smartphones before the iPhone came along, and the Tesla is obviously the iPhone of electric cars, um, you know, you've got these more and more and more complicated um, Nokias, <laughs> more and more menus and more and more complicated software. And and I've got it. So I've, my car is a plug-in hybrid um uh, super mini Mercedes. So it's the Mercedes A class, but it's the plug-in hybrid version, and it does about twenty-five miles on a on a charge. And we haven't put petrol in it since October, um, when we got it. And well, we did one trip with it, a long-distance trip, and then since then we haven't had to put petrol in it. So we can charge it. We can charge it at home. We can charge it at the supermarket. It's great. It's basically an electric vehicle. But we know that if we need to make a longer trip, we've got the um, the petrol engine to fall back on. But I can't help thinking when I look at this car. Um, and it kind of amuses me because the Mercedes was obviously the first car um, car brand, and the first car, the first automobile was you know, was a, was was built by Carl Benz and so on. Um, it can't. It reminds me of using a Nokia from sort of two thousand and five, two thousand and six, because they they've essentially said, "Oh yeah, we know how to make electric cars. We'll just like take the car we already make and stick an electric motor in it." Which of course is what Nokia was doing with smartphones. It was like, "Yeah, we know all about radio engineering. We know all about these hard things. So we're just going to like get some software and stick it in the phone." And software is sort of you know an afterthought. And actually, the really hard bit is the radio engineering and all that stuff that Nokia was really good at. Um, and it turned out that actually <laughs> the, that wasn't the way it worked out at all. Um, so I think the big question. 
question is, do the incumbents um, learn to do software faster than um, Tesla learns to do volume manufacturing? And history is, is definitely against them on this. Uh, learning to do software if you're not a software company is really hard. And in fact, there are very few examples. I'm not sure I can think of any. Um, so I think if anyone's going to pull it off, it's going to be VW. Now, their, um, their, their sort of flagship electric car now, the ID3 and the ID4, the ID3 shipped with a sort of... Um, uh, sort of symbian like you know, um, operating system. It's not iOS. Let's put it that way. And there's supposed to be this software update for it. Um, uh, but you know, obviously, they know about volume manufacturing, but they're still working on the on the software. And the the whole way that cars are traditionally built is just not compatible with making them, um, you know, easily software flashable over the air and all the wonderful things that Tesla does. Um, mm. So so yeah, I look at the Teslas now and think this is like an iPhone iphone 3g or something it's kind of a it's that that stage the evolution um and i look at the incumbents and think they, they, this is like nokia sort of faffing around um but if anyone can can uh, can give tesla a run for their money it's probably vw and and toyota has finally said they're going to make a full ev they're you know i hope this means they're going to give up on hydrogen which i just can't see working at all but certainly no. hybrids are, are not the future we are going to have to go full electric I agree. I was going to ask you that. Do we do we get get to keep both or not? Because I think uh, having certainly in Britain, people take away their cars like that. That's going to cause uproar, and I've seen that. Well, no, before. exactly. Phasing out the phasing out the, um, the the internal combustion engine is the right thing to do. I mean, I I really thought last year when we were buying a car, I thought, okay, now is the time to go full electric. But just for some of the trips we want to do, the charging infrastructure isn't there. Um, mm. So we went with the the safe option of the plug-in hybrid. But, you know, if we buy another car in future, I'm not sure we will, um, you know, that, then then if we do, it'll, I imagine we'll do that subscribe to a car thing, actually, which is quite a lot of. And, th- yeah. and that, obviously a massive trend, subscribe to everything. I subscribe to coffee and I subscribe to chocolate and, um, you know, and so on and so on. So subscribe to a car, I think, is um, is probably in my future. Um, talk a little bit, if you uh, can, about um, the wetware stuff that Musk is doing. If um, listeners don't know, he recently got a Monkey to play Pong. Um, I thought it was an April Fool's. I really did. But then he, I saw the video and I was like, OK, it's fair enough. Um, so he puts a chip inside a brain, essentially, and the, the monkey can play. What, what's your take on that? How Over the next 24 months, how fast is that going to go? He's obviously doing stuff um, behind closed doors and leaking stuff out whatever he wants but how far are people away with that um well i mean there's what that's doing is it's a it's a chip that you know so yes they've got a chimpanzee who's got a chip on each side oh no it's a macaque monkey i beg your pardon um with a chip on each side of the brain which picks up the motor you know cortex um, neuron responses so um so essentially they have you know, the, the monkey's playing a game with the joystick and they're recording the neural activity and then they actually disconnect the joystick and they just um have the the game respond to the neural activity rather than the joystick and the monkey's still moving the joystick and thinks that that's what's making things change but it's actually the oh, um the the brain activity is doing it and then eventually the monkey realizes that he doesn't have to move the joystick and he can just think and move the things on the screen so it's extremely clever and um you know, there have been a few examples of this sort of thing being demonstrated before. It is a very big um, leap from that to, you know, the sort of therapeutic neural implants that um, that, that Elon Musk talks about um, and the sort of stuff that, you know, t- uh, Facebook has talked about where you think a text and it, it writes it for you. And then it's an even bigger link from leap from that to the sort of, you know, in order to compete with AI, we all have to have chips in our brains. So it's, you know, it's it's very clever and hats off to them for doing it. But, um, but, but um, you know, as is often the case with Elon Musk, there is, there is sort of quite a large g- gulf between um, his dream of where 
where he wants to get to and where he is now. Now that said, he's a you know he's not a good man to bet against. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, I, I first met him in what two thousand and three, and he said that he I think he'd flown one rocket which had blown up. Maybe it was two thousand and five. They'd done the first Falcon one launch, and it had gone wrong, and the satellite had come off the top and actually literally fallen back onto the launch site and landed <laughs> on top of the shed where they had prepared the. So it kind of, you know, was returned to sender um, and it had not gone well. And uh, I thought this guy's nuts. And um, but, you know, all the things he said, we're going to build these reusable rockets. We're going to, you know, we're going to go to Mars. Um, You know, um, people who sound crazy and then and then with each progressive year, they sound less crazy. uh, They're the people to listen to. And he's definitely he's definitely one of those. people. I think he's a world historical figure, you know, like um, like Edison or or someone like that. I mean, um, so. So, yeah, I I know he has great grand plans for this and and he always starts small. um, But uh, but but we just have to remember that there is an enormous, (laughs) enormous gulf between what he says these things will be able to do eventually and what they could actually do now. Um, Rather like there is with the full self-driving on the Teslas. I have to say that's um, that again is a um, as the engineers like to say, the thing about self-driving cars is that the first 90 percent takes 90 percent of the time. And then the last 10 percent takes another 90 percent of the time. Um, (laughs) And it's and it's actually taking like a third 90 percent of the time uh, by this point. So um, that turns out to be a harder problem than people thought. Do you think much is going to change in the um, the law that is needed for EV and self-driving and everything like that? Um, I'm not sure that it's the laws that are really holding things back at this point. I mean, there's a fair amount of testing going on, um, you know, and the software is, um, you know, the, the, the edge cases it can cope with, it's gradually getting better. There's some impressive videos from Zooks and Aurora mm. and, and so on. But um, but I think ultimately, you know, the problem is they show you the videos when it looks the best. And, um, yeah. you know, 99% isn't good enough. It, and 99.9% isn't good enough. This stuff has got to work 99.99999% of the time. I mean, the people yeah. in the industry generally reckon, you know, there's about 40,000 road deaths in America a year. They think this is only acceptable if we can reduce that by a factor of a thousand. So 40 road deaths a year, even that is going to make headlines, you know, a road robot killed my my husband or whatever um uh, but they they think that's where the benchmark is so this has to be way safer than a human and it's it's not there yet no i don't i don't think it's there by a long shot actually based on what we see i think it's good but i think like you say there is an enormous gap between 99.999 percent in people's minds let alone you know lawmakers and that sort of exactly um Musk is a great example of an interesting, what I call an interesting leader of our time and that sort of stuff. Whether or not you would charge behind him, I don't know if many people would at the moment, but they certainly would look at what he achieves. When you think of other people like Zuckerberg, and not just big tech, but other people as well, um, who's showing real leadership when it comes to um, the politicization of business? That was a, a trend that you talked about at TBD, and I think that's a really interesting one. Yeah, I, well, I suppose it's not so much leadership. It's it's um, it's um, it's sort of being Teflon. The person I think has been most impressive in all of this is Tim Cook, actually, because yeah. Apple is Apple is the company that has the most to lose because China is an enormous market for them, and obviously everything's made in China. Well, not quite everything. I mean, they do have a few other manufacturing sites, but the vast majority of what they make is made in China. So they potentially have the most to lose. And somehow he managed to keep the Chinese on side and um, Donald Trump, which is amazing. Um, And, you know, they have all of these uh, political uh, rapids to weave their way through with the Chinese app store and with, you know, with privacy and so on and so on. And somehow he manages to stay um, you know, relatively speaking, he's not the bogeyman that that uh, that say Mark Zuckerberg is, um, and that is that really is impressive. And um, you know, CEOs generally 
uh, much more uh, likely to have to be political and have political skills because of this, uh, this not just this politicised moment, but it's actually a consequence, I think, of the fact that the loss of trust in elected politicians means that both employees yeah. and customers of companies are looking to uh, to bosses to step up and um, and you know make statements and take a stand, whether it's on racial justice or climate change or or whatever. And um, and so that that has suddenly put you know politicians in this in sorry suddenly put CEOs in this requirement this position of having to have very good political skills and i think um, i think tim cook has you know he's he's like the um you know the the diplomat who you know you who you can't remember what he said and, and um uh, but but no one is offended and that is yeah. the key um for for the for the you know what he's trying to do that they they're just trying to um you know keep their access to china keep their access to chinese manufacturing um you know obviously they depend on taiwan as well i mean they are the company that has the most to lose um if if uh, there's a, a total decoupling between the US and China, um, mm. which I think seems quite unlikely because it, you know there's a whole load of things you just can't do unless you've got access to Chinese manufacturing. But um, but anyway, I I would point to him and and it, he's not an obvious choice, but that's kind of the point, which is that um, you you don't really notice what a good job of this he's doing. Um, just a reminder to everyone, they can use the hashtag. I put a note up at the top. Uh, if you have a question for Tom um, or myself, let me know. Uh, use the hashtag mouthwash show and we'll get to it um, if we can. Um, nipping back to sort of business and work, um, I really enjoyed the future of work issue that came out recently. It was um, some in what I would call, and I've told several people, exquisite contrary thinking to like the popular narratives that are out there. Um, what do you think is going to stick after the pandemic when it comes to the world of work? Um, that is the, yeah. But it's not just the world of work. It's just generally what's going to stick. And I think that yeah. is the big question facing business right now. And well, not just business, just facing, you know, all of us, really. Um, so clearly, we're not going to go on doing things online uh, to the extent that we did. And we are going to go back to doing some things in person. But at the same time, we're not going to go back to doing all of them. So where yeah. do you end up in the middle? Um, and the answer, there is no single answer. It varies by activity. It varies by market. It varies by demographic. Um, so, you know, we've seen, for example, that um, Italy was a great laggard in e-commerce and Italy has caught up about 10 years worth of e-commerce adoption yeah. um, in the space of a few months. And there are lots of other examples of where, you know, we've seen years and years of progress. Um, if you look at the forecast that people were making about how quickly various technologies would be adopted, um, we are now in sort of 2025, 2026. Um, and so, you know, those those changes are going to stick. Um, and I think that the difficulty for companies is that um, this is going to be a very patchy recovery. We can already already see that. Um, and we're also going to see these different behaviours sticking to different extents in different countries. And what that means is you have to be very agile. You have to be able to monitor what your customers are doing and what they expect from you very quickly. And then you have to be able to respond. And then you've also got all of these new business models emerging, uh, like appointment shopping and, um, you know, curbside pickup is much more popular. Um, as, uh, you know, the way restaurants work now is, has completely changed. Um, so so, so, you know, how much of that is going to stick? So you really, really need to measure what people want and respond to it very fast. And that puts a really a, um, a, a great sort of premium on analytics. But it also it explains why so many companies have been doubling down on their digital transformation in the past year, because only only if you've really got that uh, agility to change your change your model um, quickly, uh, can you can you cope? So I think that's the you know, that's the big challenge that um, uh, we are going to see 
uh, a, a very varied picture of, of something sticking more in some places than others. And we don't know what it looks like. And it's going to take a while to come into focus. And so companies are going to need to course correct constantly, um, you know, for months and years. And, um, and that just means they need to be really, really agile and they need to up their digital game. Do you think um, people were right to say, look to big tech, they're the ones who know the future and that sort of stuff? They seem to have all done an about 180 on it. Uh, and now, you know, I think Google's going back in June or back now Facebook's going back. But they're all dribs and drabs. But it, it seems to be they talk to a good game and now literally they're saying, actually, you know what, we've got these mortgages to pay on these things. We can't get rid of them. Um, get back to your offices. Um, I think big tech is interesting for another reason, actually, which is that um, so uh, if you look at what happened, obviously, many of them have invested in these great big office buildings. Um, but if you look at what they've done in the pandemic, certainly they've said you can you can work elsewhere if you want to. Some of them have. And then we may cut your pay if you move away from the expensive Bay Area. Uh, we may cut your pay. And there's an interesting debate to be had about that. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, both Amazon and Facebook took new office space in New York at the height of the pandemic last year, um, which looks like a weird thing to do. But I think what they realized was that um, you don't, you do want offices some of the time, you do want people in offices, not all the time, but some of the time. So I think we're going to see a sort of, you know, hybrid working. I think that's going to be quite widespread. But I think they realized that um, because everything just didn't go wrong. I mean, um, if, uh, you've probably been to the massive Facebook building, right? So it's the biggest open plan office in the world. It's just colossal. It's like being in an outdoor village, but under a roof yeah. with, a, with a garden on top of it. Um, and with Mark Zuckerberg's um, uh, office in the middle, and also a strangely thick column directly underneath it, extending into the car park, which people say has a, a secret lift in it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and I always kind of nosy around Don't the give car away park the when secrets. I'm there, and, I'm, and, and then and I get funny looks from the security people. I'm going like, "Where do you think that? Yeah, it does look a bit." Anyway, um, so so, but I think the idea was that they thought if you bring everyone into the same place and stick them in the same office, then you get all of these benefits. And then they realised that actually it's okay to have some people working remotely. Some of the time or everyone working remotely some of the time and so then they realize well hang on we'll be able to hire people much more easily who are based in new york and don't want to move if we can say that's fine you can come into the office in new york and we can have these satellite offices and actually we don't all need to be in the same place as long as we can do the officey things that we want them to do with other people sometimes you know in an office it doesn't all necessarily be need to be in the same office and so i think you're going to see this sort of de-emphasis and these are companies that are growing very fast anyway so they'll you know actually they just won't build the next extension to that enormous um, Facebook building, they'll they'll take new offices in Denver or Austin or or New York or, or wherever. Um, so I think they've sort of realised that you can be um, somewhat decentralised and um, you don't need to be you know fully virtual, nor do you all need to be in, in the office at the same time. And I think most companies are you know uh, you know the idea that something like thirty percent of uh, you know, days days in the office. I think Bill Gates was predicted we'll see half of business travel go away and thirty percent of days in the office go away. And I think that's that sounds reasonable to me. And if you yeah. similarly, if you look at the real estate companies, they're predicting sort of twenty to thirty percent drop in um, you know in demand for what they do. And the, um, we'll see if that pans out or not. But that would be that would line up with that sort of forecast. So I think we are heading towards a hybrid world of like you know don't go into the office unless you actually have to do something with other people in person.
I, I agree with that. We actually have um, Reza from the co-living um, space, the collective, coming on later in the season. What do you think about things that are co, you know, co-working space, co-living? Do you think they're gonna, you know, see this thirty percent drop, or do you think they'll be more popular than ever because they realise that they actually? Well, that's the funny thing that the pandemic kind of proved we work right in a way. I mean, obviously the original S one was crazy, and and the yeah. original valuation was crazy. But but the idea that people are going to want more flexibility. Um, so I talked to the head of IW otherwise known as Regis, um, about this. And, and he was saying that, um, you know, they're seeing more demand for uh, flexible offices because, you know, people don't want as much office space and they want to be able to flex how much they have. And they're also seeing more demand for people in, for office space in suburban locations. Um, so, so less emphasis in city centres. And they were seeing that before the pandemic. So it, it's one of these many things that the, the pandemic has sort of accelerated an existing change rather than uh, rather than brought something else about, so it's so I've called this tech acceleration in um, in the world in. But I think it's an example of that, which is um, you know we were seeing a bit of this before, and now we're just seeing a, a lot more of it. And now we've been pushed forward to where we would have been in in 2025, 2026. And the other area I think that's really interesting in is um, is education, because mm-hmm. um, because you know I, I I would like to think this is going to destigmatize. Um, learning online and more people are going to spend you know and there'll be hybrid courses as well but um but the idea that it's not a real you know real education unless you're in a classroom with somebody um i think has been undermined now clearly there was a very mixed picture a lot of a lot of kids didn't have the broadband access or the devices they needed to get to, to you know get lessons and uh, at all and, and it was a reflection of broader inequalities um and i think that's all true but i think in the long run if you can address those um, access issues you can actually make um, a really good education more widely available if you use more online uh, more online teaching and online learning and i think already something like a third of master's degrees are done remotely and i think it's gone up to a half now so um so again that's a, an acceleration of, of something that was already underway I'm excited to see where that education trend goes. I think that's a really interesting one, which will have ramifications many decades beneath that. So the, the pandemic is nothing else, like you say, has validated education online and also shown still got some work to do there and that sort of stuff. Um, we're drawing to um, a close, but there's a couple of um, questions. One I'm going to ask you is, I'm sure you saw the news today about Rishi Sunak um, and the HM Treasury, uh, Treasury even, um, exploring a central bank digital currency. Any uh, thoughts on that for the next 20? months oh yeah cbdc's definitely mm-hmm. definitely worth keeping an eye on um, obviously china is furthest along with the cbdc and other um other companies other countries are, are trying these as well um they're not really cryptocurrencies um but they are you can see you can see why governments would want to do them uh, because they grant governments the magical power to do things like reduce interest rates to below zero um and also you can kind of monitor what's going on in the economy and we can see that china is in particular very concerned about the fact that um large private companies like alibaba have a much much clearer picture of what's happening in the chinese economy i mean alibaba touches something like 70 percent of packages that are in flight in in china uh, so they have you know this is why ant financial is you know potentially such such a monster um mm. because it's um it, it has the ability to you know do credit scoring for most of the population it, it knows a huge amount about their transactional history and so forth and so forth so in china it's like oh dear we can't have this so we need to take um jack ma down a peg or two and we need to have our own digital currency uh, to make sure that no one else does it and these payment systems don't um don't become uh, too powerful um so alipay and uh, and so on um and then other countries are also uh, looking around and, and saying you know we need to do our version of 
our version of this. This is what usually happens with technologies, that you have a sort of domestication of the of the Wild West version of it. Um, and I think this is what's going to happen with crypto. Um, so, you know, the purists will say, well, of course, it isn't a proper cryptocurrency and blah, 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 blah. And that, that's fine. They can all just go off into a corner and, you know, let's hope they've got a lot of electricity um, and, and do their thing. But I think the... Um, we very often see that the the sort of scary uh, revolutionary technology gets domesticated and and um and, and sort of turned into a form where you get most of the benefits um and uh, and then it's in a form that you know the government can uh, will approve of um so i like to say that bitcoin is sort of like napster um in the sense that it was it sort of showed there was demand for a thing and it was a cool idea and so on and so on but um you know what's the spotify of, of crypto going to be um is it ethereum i don't think it is i think um well we'll see what happens when they switch over to um to proof of stake and all the rest of it but i think you know government saying actually we're going to have a digital currency and we'll we'll do it our way and there are lots of benefits for us for that and there are actually lots of benefits for you folks as well and the crypto people in the corner will go yes yes but you can still you know inflate do terrible things print, you know, print money blah, blah, blah. and most people just don't care about that at all so um so i i think that's i think that's probably the way we're going and um and yeah definitely keep an eye on the chinese um experiment in particular and um and i think mark carney actually suggested this when he was still bank of bank of england governor he was like yeah um central banks should be looking closely at their own their own digital currencies and so it's not surprising to see this announcement love it um so we've come to uh, almost the end of the show and what i'm going to be doing is um basically getting guests to pick one tweet that has impacted their life or changed their way of thinking in some way shape or form i've just posted it to the top of the uh space that we're in um it is a gentleman uh, or the account's called massimo uh, rainmaker 1973 which you can all forward afterwards um explain this tom why did you pick this tweet? oh well, this is just like the, the greatest you know this is the, it, uh, for all of the things that people say about twitter really terrible and you know and doom scrolling and how depressing it is um so so in order to sort of counteract that you need to be following some accounts that you know that make you smile and and do silly things so you know in my case i follow like you know the samuel peeps account that's tweeting his his diary and and then i'm a sort of massive 80s com retro computing nerd so i follow a whole load of accounts to do with that um but this one uh massimo um he just posts awesome stuff from god knows where he finds it uh, but it's just consistently um amazing and entertaining and fun and just reminds you about the good side of twitter and why why we stick with it um despite all of the of the rubbish and um and so you know if i had to pick one account that is sort of consistently um the the joyful side of twitter then this would be the one so um so if you don't if you don't uh, follow him already please do but um yeah it's a great guy I love it. I, I think you've raised a good point there about why I chose to do this on Twitter spaces versus other audio spaces that are already available or becoming available as of, what, five minutes ago, probably, thanks to Facebook. Who knows? Yes, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Exactly. I'm, I'm eager to see what the two have been talking about while we've been uh, going live and that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's an interesting um, space. But like you say, uh, Twitter, it, people have different experiences on it based on lots of different things, how long they've been on. Yeah, and I'm playing on the easiest level as, you know, uh, as a heterosexual white man. So, um, so yes, that's the, as, as John Scalzi brilliantly put it. So, um, so yeah, I'm not even seeing half the hassle that, that, that a lot of people see on Twitter. But even yeah. so, um, uh, brighten up your day, follow this, uh, follow this account, and, um, and uh, you're, you're, you're bound to find something that will amuse you. Definitely. And I can't tell everybody, I tell it, I think every time I do a speaking, I was like, find a Twitter list, find out how to make a Twitter list and put all of the Twitters that you like in there and just have that one place that's safe that you know that you can go and you'll find Exactly, exactly. Stuff. 
super, super useful and that sort of stuff. Um, right. I have to uh, wrap this up. Tom, I cannot thank you enough for being the, uh, I can't think of a more perfect guest to be the first one um, for Mouthwash. This is a huge experiment for me. Uh, really proud to have an amazing array of people on season one. Uh, we have New York Times bestsellers. We've got Silicon Valley alumni coming up. We've got activists and investigative journalism. Um Actually, the gentleman that I'm referring to with that last one being an investigative journalist is James Ball. Um, he's uh, up tomorrow, actually, and he's talking with this moi about a tiny thing called the truth. Um, and he should know some things about that, actually. He's done work for WikiLeaks, The Guardian, uh, and he's now global editor for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He's also uh, got a great cat and one of those tiny things called a Pulitzer Prize. So um, he's another smart cookie, just like Tom. Um Please do me a huge favor and show your appreciation for Tom one more time just by uh, going into the emojis and picking your favorite one, maybe 100%. I don't know. Uh, completely up to you while I just get another tweet up. Um, I'm not going to lie, the UX on this needs uh, some uh, education for myself, but uh, it should be good other than that. So I'm hoping to see those when I pop back in. So you should see uh, the next uh, one up there, uh, thing. So thank you again for listening. Um, you can follow Tom Standage on Twitter at, at Tom Standage with an E uh, as well. And again, thank you um, for Ecology, um, for planting a tree, for all of us who joined. So I hope to see you all back tomorrow as well. I think the truth is an important thing. I don't think Tom will disagree with me on that. Um, make sure you add all of the calendar um uh, invites you can go to mouthwashshow.com and uh, find out more about mouthwash who's coming up that's super easy once you've added them all to your um, calendar you don't have to worry about them ever again um, and who knows by the end of mouthwash um, twitter will probably have updated the app and we'll have more functionality and we'll build something else into um, mouthwash but can't thank you for joining me for the first one i will certainly start breathing again now um, and it leaves me just to sign off and i think we're going to go with the sign off of okay now go and brush your teeth and make sure you never finish a day without some mouthwash Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. Tom, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Thanks also to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by kindly leaving me a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get any podcasts so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes which feature activists, AI experts, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash. <laughs>